Hello, folks. I am Francisco Camacho with Pindrop World News, and I'm speaking now with Ambassador Dennis Jett. Mr. Jett was the U.S. Ambassador to Peru and as well to our country subject today, Mozambique. Ambassador Jett, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you for uh, inviting me, Francisco. Of course. I, I want to go ahead and start with uh, something that happened in your time uh, as ambassador to Mozambique. This is in the 1990s. Uh, 1994, about a year after your tenure started, the UN peacekeeping mission in Mozambique ended. Um, you know, even in my international relations classes, it was occasionally mentioned as like a very quick, short-term UN peacekeeping mission, something that doesn't happen all too often. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like in, in the moment to when this uh, peacekeeping mission came to an end? Yeah, it was, uh, it was successful um, and it was relatively short. It took a couple of years for, uh, for the mission to reach its uh, mandate, complete its mandate. Uh, and I found it so interesting that I wrote my PhD dissertation on why peacekeeping worked in Mozambique and why it failed about the same time in Angola, which is another former Portuguese colony just on the other uh, coast of Africa. Uh, and that became uh, a book called Why Peacekeeping Fails, uh, if you don't mind me putting in a plug. And the, the second edition of that book uh, came out a, a year or two ago, uh, the 20th anniversary of why peacekeeping fails. Uh, but if you want the, if you don't want the book length version of what happened and why in, in Mozambique and Angola, I just in the last week or so uh, published a, an article uh, on where I think peacekeeping stands today. And it, it appears in a journal called Middle East Policy. Uh, and the article is open access, so you can um, you can uh, anybody can access it with without having to pay the usual price of um, access to some journals. Uh, and it's called "Why Peacekeeping Doesn't Promote Peace." And so uh, it did in Mozambique, but um, that is because it well there were several reasons. Uh, Number one, it was a, a civil war. Um, when the UN get, first got involved in peacekeeping, it's it's and it's still involved in these missions. Uh, they were wars between countries over territory. So it, starting in 1948, when Israel was attacked by its Arab neighbors, uh, and that mission that in 1948 is still going strong. Uh, there. Were, a year later, there was a mission uh, in uh, Kashmir because of the fighting between India and Pakistan. That mission is still going on. And there are about three or four other missions that are of this variety of dealing with a conflict that's a result of war between countries over territory. Um, the challenges to, to peacekeepers are pretty straightforward. You need to, hopefully there's a ceasefire established and then the peacekeepers get in between the two warring factions and patrol the demilitarized area just to ensure that um, a, a, uh, neither side uses the ceasefire to improve their military position. So it's kind of a confidence building measure. The only bad aspect of that is sometimes it's very hard to resolve the underlying conflict because that means drawing a border 
that imaginary line on a map which divides one country from another. And one side or the other will say, we don't like where the line is being drawn, even though we requested international boundary commission or whatever it is. Uh, and, and so it's hard for politicians to admit that they are surrendering any territory uh, for which they fought, over which they fought a, a war. So uh, of the six war uh, peacekeeping missions about wars between countries over, over territory, they have a combined total of 300 years of peacekeeping effort. And <laughs> in all six of them, there's no prospect of any resolution of any of them in any anytime soon. So, but the second generation was the wars uh, over political power, civil wars, and they were mostly in newly independent countries like Angola and Mozambique. So there, what was required of the peacekeepers was much more complex because the, the usually or often the way of resolving the conflict was to have an election and then you would have a, a legitimate government and it would have the right to rule. And so it required, uh, if you had a civil war which was raging, first of all, you had to get the parties to sign a ceasefire. And then you had to do things like take all the armed combatants and put them into camps, uh, demobilize most of them, help them adapt to civilian life, uh, and then take a certain number of them and form a single new unified national army that would be loyal to whoever won the election and not simply loyal to one faction or another. So that was the, the most important part because they didn't do that in Angola. They didn't, they let, they went ahead with the elections with both the rebels and the government retaining troops that were loyal to them. And so when uh, the election was held in Angola, the uh, loser, uh, Jonas Savimbi, who was the rebel leader that the United States backed because he professed to be anti-communist, which was pretty meaningless, but nonetheless, that was in the days of the Cold War. So he didn't like the outcome because he lost. And so he said, um, you know, can't be, it's not a free and fair election if, if I don't win it. You know, good thing that would never happen in the United States, right? So, um, so anyhow, they went back to war. So the the biggest challenge for us was to get this demobilization, reintegration, creation of the new army step uh, accomplished before the elections was actually held. And so the elections were supposed to help be held in 93. They were delayed and held in 94. And it was a very, the, the, the government was basically trying to keep people out that were loyal to it. So that if in the chance uh, that it lost the election, that it could restart the war. Uh, and we leaned on them pretty hard uh, to uh, live up to the peace treaty they signed in 1992 in, in Rome and, and to go ahead with the process. And so uh, we were able to do that. Um, you can, <laughs> if you want to go to... My oral history, um, there's an organization called ADST.org, uh, and they have oral histories of 3,000 uh, retired uh, diplomats, and uh, you can read in greater detail what, what happened or my view of what happened during Mozambique at that time. Uh, so uh, we, we 
held the elections. And then, so the other uh, task, first of all, you have to encourage a country and help a country that has never had a democratic election before hold one, uh, register voters, voter education, et cetera, and then uh, allow for campaigning, and then uh, allow for the vote counting, and then that, that tabulation of the votes, the actual vote casting of the ballots, and then the, the tabulation. So it's kind of a three-step process. Sometimes when international observers go in, they don't get there much before the election. They watch the people vote and then and then they leave. So they're not there for the campaigning or even sometimes for the vote counting. And so that's where there can be lots of problems. In any event, it, it went pretty smoothly in, in uh, the election in 1994. And uh, the government won, uh, not overwhelmingly, but, um, you know, it's pretty solid. The rebel leader, a guy named Daklama, uh, was at the verge of doing the same thing Savimbi did and saying, oh, I didn't win, so it can't be fair. So I talked to him, the British ambassador talked to him. We went to him late at night and told him, you know, we're going to take these allegations of Irregularity seriously, we'll investigate them, but you know, for the good of the country, for your political future, etc., you, you need to go along with what the outcome is, and uh, that worked. In the problem in Angola was Angola's a rich country. Um, Angola, the government of Angola, was making three billion dollars a year from oil. And the uh, rebel leader, Mr. Savimbi, was making half a billion dollars from diamonds that he controlled and was able to mine. So that's about three and a half billion reasons not to um, have an election uh, that's free and fair and, and to keep on fighting. And so, on the other hand, in Mozambique, uh, the uh, resources are shrimp and cashews, which are, you know, delicious, but don't produce the billions of dollars that you can uh, have to continue a, a war. So the resources, we had leaders in Mozambique that were willing to accept the outcome. And the other factor that I think is most important is the neighboring countries in Mozambique all want to get their imports in and their exports out using Mozambique's ports and railways and roads. And so uh, they had a vested interest in seeing peace in, in, in Mozambique. And Angola, most of the neighboring countries either didn't care or wanted to get a piece of the diamond action or, or, or some other way to profit. So those factors, and, and, and then the peacekeeping uh, mission you know, the peacekeepers themselves were kind of marginally important, but I think it's the, the three things that mattered most were the, the leaders, the resources, and, and the neighbors, yeah, and regional powers and any, any superpower interests that might have played into it. Uh, and so it, it went well. Uh, it, it was, as I said, not without resistance on the part of the government. And Sometimes my own government didn't realize uh, the importance of uh, making sure that the government uh, completed its obligations under the uh, uh, peace treaty uh, of Rome uh, that they signed in 1992. So it, it, 
after that, though, the, the peacekeepers packed up and left. The, the people who were running the country and had run the country since independence. You know, when the Portuguese gave their colonies independence, it was virtually overnight. And, and the Portuguese had never bothered to invest in edu educating any of the local people. And so literally you had countries like Mozambique that came to independence with a, you could count the number of college graduates on your fingers of your hands and have a few left over. Uh, and this rebel group, called for Limo, they were the only sort of organization to turn the government over to. And so the Portuguese handed them the keys to the government and then, and then left. Um, and a similar thing happened in Angola. Um, and then because of the politics of the region, it was Rhodesia run by whites instead of Zimbabwe run by Mr. Mugabe and horrible other leaders. Um, uh, it, it was apartheid South Africa. So that helped fuel the civil war because uh, Mozambique was supporting uh, liberation movements in both those countries. Uh, and so the white rule regimes repaid the favor by helping the, the rebels. And that plus the when the Verlimo took over, it ran like a Communist Party runs things. You know, they tell you what to do, and and there isn't any discussion. Kind of the way Mr. Putin runs Russia today. So, um, uh, as I said, it it went well, but ever since then, it's been the same people in power. They've had an election for president every five years. They've been slowly pushing elections down to the local level, but it's still very centralized. It's still run by a small thoroughly corrupt elite. And uh, so while the country has been generally at peace, um, so that's a positive thing. They were, the Civil War didn't continue, but the, the, there are still lots of problems, including an, uh, an insurgency in the northern part of the country that has forced a million people from their homes and, and killed about 4,000 people. But that's a that's a sort of today's problem. But it, the essential problem is, I think it, you see it throughout Africa. And you, you just saw it in, in, in Niger, where the military came in and threw out the president. And, and now we're supposedly going to try him for treason. I mean, that's, that's kind of a chutzpah on a Republican uh, Party level of uh, shamelessness to, to, to say that, uh, you know, the, the people who committed the coup are, are trying the president who was elected for, for treason. Anyway, it kind of reminds me, I spent time in, in South America, too, and back in the 70s, even, they... Um, the, it was kind of a revolving door between um, elected governments and military governments because both of them were pretty inept. And then I think um, Latin America in general, with a few exceptions like Venezuela, matured to the point where they could actually have elections and they didn't have to go back to the to the military. Well, the, the military, one of the reasons that people went back to the military is that they were generally the most respected institution in, in Latin America. Maybe the Catholic Church, slightly more. 
uh, I remember in Peru, I think the approval rating of the Catholic Church was like 70 percent. Approval rating of the army was in the in the mid to low 50, 40s. And then everything else, the presidency, the Congress, the judicial system was in the teens, just about where it is in the United States today. Uh, maybe not even in the teens for Congress, but in any event, I think the other thing, because of the political development and economic development, you had a, a robust civil society in uh in in uh, Latin America now, um, free press, uh, high literacy, so you can actually read the free press. Um, so all of those things, I think, uh, are, and sometimes the legislature works, and sometimes the judicial system works. So all of that provides a check in the balance on the power of the executive branch and the power of the ability of the government to 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 make decisions without any constraints. And as Lord Acton said a century and a half ago or more, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So without that, uh, you get the problem that you now see in Africa, uh, where there's very low literacy, there's often no free press, there certainly wasn't in Mozambique, um, except there was one fax newsletter and uh when i was there that was free but the mm. government controlled the radio station it controlled the tv station to the extent there was any uh controlled the newspapers it, and uh um, i wasn't very popular with any of them and i have in my office a couple of clippings from newspapers of where i made the headlines for you know, some of the things that i said during that time so um that that is the problem today in in Mozambique. You have elections. You're going to have elections in October at uh, the local level, and then a year from October at the presidential level. But the government does uses everything in its power to to rig the election. To not rig it so much as to go out and uh, use the police. You know, the, I was just looking at an article. There was a um, a town about halfway up the coast of Mozambique called Bilanculus, uh, where the opposition party wanted to have a parade to introduce their candidate for mayor in that town. And the police uh, stopped them and it almost got physical. Uh, but the, the police and country like Mozambique are not to protect the people from criminals. They are to protect the criminals from the people and the criminals are the people in, in government. And so um, it's just another, and the same way with the army. Um, the, the army uh, is generally there to protect the government from the people rather than protect the national interest and protect the, the borders. So um, that's where we are in Mozambique. Um, what, yeah. Would you like to discuss I, further? I appreciate that, Mr. Ambassador. You've uh, preempted a lot of my my questions that I had in, in terms of a broader sense. You've addressed a lot of the systematic stuff. Um, to talk right. about a couple of particular points, if I may, I want to turn first to uh, corruption, um, which you seem to describe as one of, if not the greatest problem facing Mozambique in a systematic way. Uh, I want to talk about the 
consequences that you might foresee from the hidden debts uh, case in the trials. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, we've told our listeners that we there were 19 high-profile figures who have gone through judicial trials for this corruption case. Do you think that the fact that these uh, trials did take place, that there are these punishments being seen out, is that going to have any effect on corruption in the long term, or is it just a one-off case? Well, it would be nice to think that it would uh, limit it, um, but I doubt it will have much impact. I think it was very encouraging, encouraging that these people were uh, brought to trial. I, every time uh, our former president gets indicted, I get encouraged too, um, but we haven't gotten to trial yet. Um, so, uh, and but I think part of the problem is you've got international banks who are willing to lend, uh, make these loans, which they know are, are bad loans because they get huge commissions and kickbacks on them, which is why there was international uh, prosecution uh, and some of the bankers were, I haven't followed all the cases, but some of them were, were tried uh, or charged. And so um, it really, the, but it's pretty systemic, the corruption. And of course, it could be just a a, a, a cop stopping your car and saying you were speeding and then you know basically if you pay this speeding ticket on the spot uh, meaning you hand a five dollar bill to the cop uh, then uh, you get to proceed Uh, I was listening to the radio I think yesterday where they were talking about now that the Taliban has taken over in Afghanistan I mean they've done all kinds of horrible things with regard to women's rights but there aren't Cops everywhere are taking bribes. You can drive anywhere, and according to the one person who was talking about the situation there, uh, you could drive anywhere in, in Afghanistan, and you wouldn't be harassed by the police every, you know, so many miles. So uh, it, it's kind of endemic in in countries, uh, some countries, and it really takes leadership at the top. You know, the, the old saying that the fish rots from the head. Well, I, I think. Uh, that's true. Uh, and th- there's limits to what you can do, but you, you, if it if it's not seen that the, the top levels uh, are, are not corrupt and working against it, then it's basically give, giving the signal that everybody can engage it, in it. And so um, it's a long way of saying I'd, I'd like to think it would provide some limitation, but it's not going to change the, the the basic problem, which is that you've got too many people with too too much little power and too little checks on the, on the abuse of that power and 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 poor salaries. You know, if I were making two hundred dollars a month and could stop traffic uh, on the street outside my house, I would probably. Uh, start doing that too. Right. Yeah. Corruption manifests in many different ways. And uh, it seems like Mozambique is a country where it manifests in most of those ways. So uh, like you said, an endemic problem in a lot of ways. But to turn to uh, another issue, the insurgency in Cabo Delgado, I I really want to talk about this because 
this had been in and out of the news, uh, even in the U.S. for many for many years now. But I, I, you know, the coverage has been less and less uh, since the Rwandan uh, troops came in. About a thousand of them. Uh, do you think that they are succeeding in in quelling this uh, insurgency? Have the Rwandan troops, in particular, had a a big impact in this regard? And what is the status of the insurgency at the moment? Well, it's kind of hard to say because I, I was just reading an article that said the insurgents attacked a military base and killed ten soldiers and had had taken over this base. Um, and, and in the same article, they were saying that the president of Mozambique had claimed that they had pushed the insurgents back out of all the all the places they were. Um, it, I think the fundamental problem there is that we're talking about um, the, the northernmost province uh, of Mozambique. The capital of Mozambique is in the southern tip of the country. So there's probably a thousand miles or more between those two um, places. And the people, not only in the extreme north, but pretty much anywhere outside the capital. Again, it's kind of like the United States where people think what happens in Washington is a different world and nobody in Washington cares about the rest of the country. Um, there, it's it's manifest in the fact that you have high unemployment uh, and you have a subsistence agriculture is the only way to get by often. But you have a government that shows no apparent interest in doing anything for, the, for its own people. And so when some Islamic extremist or whatever you want to call him, you know, insurgent and terror, terrorist, violent extremist, etc., lots of different names depending on how you define it and how, what you're trying to convey with that name. Uh, when they come through and say, hey, unemployed young man, um, your government doesn't care about you. Your government is giving you no hope for the future. Why don't you join the insurgency and, and we'll take over and make things better and, and run the, the world the way we see, according to our interpretation of Sharia law or whatever it is. Um, and so that's attractive. Uh, the UNDP did a, a, a study, United Nations Development Program, where they went out and interviewed like 450 young men um, who had belonged to violent extremist groups. And, and they asked him, basically, why did you join? And they, and they said just that. No hope, no job, no future, no government that cares. Why not? And so... Um, how long that's that's not going to change. The government isn't going to suddenly develop an interest in serving its own people. The government is basically interested in serving the people in the government. And so uh, and they don't have the pressure. Other than the occasional criminal case uh, to, to, to do better, um, they'll try and rig the elections again. And they'll do their best to prevent opposition parties from having any success, success even at the local level. Um, so it's uh, it's hard to how strong uh, are these forces? Where do they get get their weapons and and their revenue from? If you're you know it, it's a business, you have to have income to. Uh, 
you know, keep your your people on the payroll. And, uh, but it's a kind of shoe, shoe, shoestring operation. I don't know that they're getting any uh, any support. Again, one of the reasons it was important for Mozambique and the success there was none of the neighboring countries were providing support to to the rebels as they were when it was Rhodesia and apartheid South Africa. Uh, but I don't know of any outside support. But um, and now you have Rwandan troops. I guess the Rwandan troops uh, are sufficiently well trained, well paid, and well led, and have enough combat experience that they can afford to to go into a country like Mozambique. And, and I'm sure they're probably uh, an African version of Wagner. They probably go in and say, "Hey." We'll help you with your problem, but you know this is what you're going to have to pay us. Uh, I, I don't know. If, of course, Wagner has no uh, limitations on the human rights abuses or other kinds of crimes that will commit. I would hope that Rwandan troops are a little better disciplined in that regard. But you know, if if you were uh, a Mozambican soldier and rarely got paid and saw your officers, you know, basically interested in enriching themselves, you know, you wouldn't be willing to, or particularly interested in running out and dying for your country. And so um, I can see why the Mozambican army is basically incapable of dealing with this. Uh, and you have certain, um, if not popular support, uh, you have a local population that would just like to not be killed by either side, and so they're not going to not going to support the government in their efforts to um, get rid of the terrorists. So it, it it can it's a situation that can go on for some time. The only problem, of course, is you have multi-billion-dollar energy projects that that oil companies around the world and energy companies would like to exploit. And so they will be pumping money in. And one of the reasons in Angola that the government was able to continue collecting that $3 billion in oil revenue is the oil was offshore. Uh, I'm sure that they will create an enclave, uh, um, the energy companies, and probably protect it with mercenaries. And that may allow you know, it'll add to the cost of the resources taken out. But uh, as I said, multi-billion dollar project uh, projects, uh, that's pretty strong incentive to um, to con continue the um, th those kinds of developments. And of course, the government get its hands on some of that money. And one thing that won't happen is it won't go toward developing the local area in the same way in Nigeria, that was at Biafra, where they pumped out the oil and, and uh, left the pollution and nothing else. Um, so you won't have any popular support um, unless the government's you know, smart enough, which I doubt it is, to provide some resources locally to demonstrate to the people that it's not just about coming in, taking the resources and, and leaving them even more impoverished than before.
I, I want to touch on something you briefly mentioned, which is the involvement of Wagner in the, the Cabo Delgado insurgency. Um, I think we have time for like two more quick questions. But um, okay. regarding Wagner, uh, you know, they had been sort of like the Praetorian Guard, more or less, uh, in Mozambique for the for the president prior. In 2019, they were briefly involved in the Cabo Delgado insurgency um, in what I think many regard as a bit of a, a, a fiasco, a very short-lived uh, involvement. Do you see any takeaways, any important lessons from that Wagner involvement, or is it just a blip in the system for both Wagner and for Mozambique? I think it's probably more a, a blip in the system. I think it it, it demonstrates that it's not easy. It just, you can't send in a handful of foreign mercenaries and assume you're going to vanquish the, the local insurgency. I think it's much more deeply entrenched and, and intractable than that. Uh, with uh, energy projects the size of them, uh, you know, will the government have more money to hire more, more Wagner? I mean, you could it's just a question of cost. It's not not um, there aren't any constraints on on Wagner. Well, you know they're pretty busy in in uh, the Ukraine, but uh, Ukraine. But um, I I don't think anybody has learned any lesson other than they probably will just say, well, we just need to use more force, and we need to drive all the local people. We have a million people displaced from that region well if we you know drive all the rest out then we can have a free fire zone and uh, uh, we'll deal with it that way um, so uh, if they've learned anything it's probably not the right lesson gotcha and, and I want to conclude uh, with bringing back to sort of a lesson for the future but also to international relations um, you wrote back in 2020 in an article for foreign policy titled Mozambique is a failed state, the West isn't helping, that, quote, rich countries care more about stability in countries that are partial failures than they do about democracy. Um, but, you know, that article is three years old. So I'm curious if in the past three years, you've seen any developments in the Western stance towards relations with Mozambique and trying to assist this country towards stability and or democracy? I think the short answer is no. Um, you know, the last time they had a presidential election, the State Department rushed forward and said, oh, it looks okay to us. And then the Euro European Union sent in observers that uh, it took them a while because you had to do a lot of work uh, and, and talk to a lot of people, but they basically came out with that report that said, no, this is this was not a free and fair election. And that came out about a month later, or even two months later. But um, th there wasn't any um, sort of penalty for that. that. Half of the government's budget comes from the international community. And you would think with that kind of leverage, um, they would say, okay, we, we want better governance. And and, and organizations like the World Bank and the IMF are, are, are even worse. They, 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 they never mention the word corruption. They might call it governance issues or something like that. So I think uh, while we say we support democracy, uh, often other uh, 
interests are, are given a higher priority. In this case, stability or maybe the energy. Um, in the case of Niger, we we have a drone base with a thousand soldiers on it. And so we're kind of saying, well, we don't like what's happening in Niger and it might have consequences, but we're, so that's kind of a different situation because we do, we have a major interest there. I, you know, why we need a drone base at all in that kind of area. I mean, again, my feeling is that in the Sahel, the problem is governance. It's not, and the solution is governance. And it's not, the extremist threat is not something that is solvable by military means. And it's certainly not solvable by sending in UN peacekeepers, which is what we have done in, in a number of countries. And now Mali has said, you know, you peacekeepers can get out of here. We don't want you here. And, the, and they're in the process of leaving now. And uh, meanwhile, Mali was more than happy to have Wagner come in and solve the problem the Wagner way. So I think the, the bottom line for me is we don't put enough emphasis on democracy. Uh, and of course, we should talk. Do we do we, do we still have a democracy so far? Maybe. Um, but um, uh, we ought to, because these countries, as I mentioned, don't have a free press don't have a literate population uh, that are economically well enough to engage in civil society, a uh, judicial system capable of justice, with rare exceptions like in Mozambique. The pressure to govern well ought to come from the people who have the leverage, and that's the international donor community who gives Mozambique half its budget. But there again, you've got all these different countries giving money to these uh, extremely poor countries, and, and you get these arguments, well, we can't you know, cut their funds because it will hurt their, their, the people, which is true. Um, but if you don't have that pressure, then there is no pressure. And so we're waiting around for the people to figure out that, that they have to bring the pressure themselves. I mean, it, it's, and it, it took, as I said, took a long while in Latin America to get to where Latin America is. And you still have Venezuela and Nicaragua and, and Central America in general, which is a mess, but um, at least now it's elected government to elected government, as opposed to, bringing in the military and, and, and having another coup. Uh, but that took a, a, a tremendous amount of economic and political development. And uh, it, that's you know, not going to happen quickly in Africa. And climate change, of course, only adds to it because when you have, you know, in, in Mozambique, I don't know what the number is now, it's probably 80% of the people get by on subsistence agriculture. 70% maybe. Uh, and when <laughs> you change the climate and you can't grow enough food to feed your family, then uh, you're not going to sit at home and starve to death. You're going to start migrating. And that's um, a whole nother host of problems that uh, we're failing to deal with particularly effectively. <laughs> Dennis Jett is a professor of international affairs at 
Pennsylvania State University in the 1990s. He served as both the U.S. Ambassador to Peru and the U.S. Ambassador to Mozambique. Ambassador Jet, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you. 